Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Stephen Rosen and Ted Mather from Available Light to discuss revealing the story with light. Stephen and Ted, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Alan. Thank you Tell for having us. Uh, so for those who don't know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and, and what you do? I, I'd love to hear from both of you. Well, Ted, why don't you go first? Uh, I'm Ted Mather. I'm a managing principal of uh, the New York office of Available Light. I've been with Available Light since 2008. Uh, I come from a theatrical background, um, but now primarily focus on museums and the built environment. Great. Uh, and I am uh, Ted Mather's friend. Uh, and I started Available Light about 31 years ago and uh, found uh, the right spot when Ted decided to join our company. And uh, we have been off and running with all sorts of lighting design from trade show exhibits and architecture to our beloved topic today, lighting the museum environment. So happy to be here. So Ted Mather's friend is named Stephen Rosen. And uh, this <laughs> is my you know favorite ridiculous corner joke. You, you've been doing this for 31 years, so therefore... Uh, you started when you were uh, eight? Uh, 12, 12. <laughs> 12, 12, I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's my... I had to, before you can put your finger in the socket, your parents have to get you to a certain level of training. I see. Okay, good. Okay, so um, Ted, you mentioned that you were came from a theatrical background. I would love to know how you got specifically into this business. Uh, well, I got into lighting uh, in eighth grade because I was tall enough to reach the lights on the ladder because I'm tall. Uh, and that led into a career into the theater and working um, uh, on on Broadway and a lot of tours and, and things. And then around 1999, uh, there was a project called Science City uh, in Union in um, Kansas City that they wanted to be very theatrically lit to try and break away from kind of the museum mold of you know kind of static. Yep. I uh, think so. They, um, uh, I was brought in to to try and zhuzh things up a bit theatrically. And one of the interesting things about that project was there were five different exhibit designers on that project. So I got to work with a lot of different people that had different points of view about how an exhibit should be designed. And it turned out to be a, a very interesting uh, way to apply my talents of. Um, composition and storytelling and all that stuff. So I kind of was able to help uh, uh, bring the museum world into kind of a new era that had to compete with, you know, interactives and screens and television and movies and so forth. So it was a, it was a little bit of happenstance. First it was height and yes. then it was, you just showed up for the gig and, and the rest was history. <laughs> that's about right. Yeah. All right. I, I'm taking notes here. I have to. I have to figure out how to spell zhuzh, but that's a that's a different matter. So, Stephen, how, how did you get into this specific industry from lighting design into this? Well, uh, like Ted, I uh, started at an early age. Uh, I discovered I was not going to be an actor. This was not uh, my zhuzh, and so I got into lighting, uh, and that led to um, a lot of schooling. And Ted and I both share an alma mater. We both have our MFA in stage design from NYU. And so kind of through those connections, we knew each other. Uh, and my, my entree was um, uh, a, a generous invitation from a fabulous uh, company that is uh, that no longer exists. They've retired. That was uh, Krent Paffett Associates, who were headquartered in Boston. Right. And I'm, I was doing a big corporate event for a giant computer company uh, that was no longer, no longer exists either. The technology age has brushed them aside. But uh, they, Krent Paffett had been hired to light the decor, to, I mean, to design the decor for that exhibition. And uh, we got to talking one day and they told me what their, what their core business was, which was lighting, uh, which was designing exhibits for museums. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Never thought of that. And uh, they were gracious enough to invite me to light a project for them, which was the Virginia Air and Space Center in Hampton Roads, Virginia. And from there, it just kind of exploded because at the time, this is the late 80s, early 90s, there were quite a large number of museum exhibit design firms in the Boston area. That's right. Yep. Uh, and once the word got out that there was this expert in lighting design for museums, I had done exactly one museum. Right. Uh, uh, I did, I just, the phone just started to ring, uh, and right. uh, off we went. Right. The beauty of market positioning. 
That's awesome. Uh, it sounds like both of you uh, do come from a theatrical background, which is a common thread I'm seeing in 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 these interviews. Um, I mentioned before in a, in a previous interview that actually in Europe, um, set design is considered to be part of a universe of disciplines in which exhibition design is included. So uh, whether you're in Germany or you're in France, uh, they would use the word scenography. That's right. Uh, to refer to all of those arts, actually, or some would, not everybody would, but some would. And I just think it's interesting that, that y'all are living proof of that. That said, what inspired you to come up with the topic for today? The topic for today is revealing the story with light. Where does that come from? Well, to me, revealing the story with light, we, we ought, when you, when you talk to most exhibit designers or lighting designers, and Jonathan, I think you would, you would include yourself in this, is our, our role is to help explain, to help tell the story of content that, that, are, that is in a museum, make it accessible to a, a crowd that may not have an expertise in what they've come to see. And uh, theatrical lighting design and theatrical design in general has always been about taking an idea and visualizing it. And lighting designers are like the cherry on the sundae. Uh, our, our, the prime designer, the exhibit designer, develops ways to tell the story, to explain uh, a path through an idea. So you start with introductory and you work your way toward more advanced, you work your way toward more advanced material. Hmm. And by doing that, you are really trying to connect dots and tell a story. And one of the things that I think we're very good at is is how to illuminate that story as it's being told in three dimensions or graphics. Where should you look? How should you get around? Um, how should you feel? Um, a lot of the, a lot of the emotion of an exhibit can come from the lighting. And so what you'd remember when you leave there and what you tell your friends about it afterwards, we like to think is often inspired or motivated by how the space was illuminated with its color and its highlight and its contrast. And I have a couple of side questions for you as lighting designers in the theater. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I'm wondering, I once heard from somebody in the, in the theater, I have a theatrical background too, actually, strangely enough. I heard from somebody in the theater once that this phrase that stuck with me, and I've, I've worked with both of you professionally also, and this phrase was rattling around in my head during those projects, and it was this phrase, if it ain't lit, it ain't there. The idea being that on stage, when you turn off all the lights in the theater, uh, if you don't have a light on the thing that you're supposed to see, you won't be able to see it. It might as well not be there. Um, is is that a phrase that other people know, or is that just some crazy guy filling my head with nonsense? No, that's that's absolutely true. And there's a there's a finer point to that, which is uh, if the lips aren't lit, you don't hear them. Which is uh, you know you've got a stage full of people and right. somebody's talking, and you're trying to figure you're an audience member. You're trying to figure out who of those thirty people on stage is talking. And if you don't have focus, a, a, a stronger focus on the lead who is speaking, you you simply won't hear them. You won't know who it's coming from. You can't discern the words. You really have to put focus on it. So uh, it, it is true. We, we can control that space on the stage three-dimensionally by not lighting a lot of things. And that often is our job. Uh, not lighting certain elements is as, is as important as lighting other elements. Um, you know, to create that illusion. Right. That, that kind of goes to the, uh, the old audio engineer saw, if you want to make something louder, make everything else quieter. Right. That's right. Because, because you can only go so loud. Well, you know, when you think about a Broadway show or any major theatrical event that you've been to, you are always revealing from darkness. So you don't want your audience to know where the back of the building is or where the edges of the scenery are. Everything lighting designers do is to focus that energy so that you're, you become unaware of all the other things that are around you. And there are plenty of projects that Available has done where that has become our mantra. You know, we've had the ability to work in a black box with some sort of a theatrical experience. And now how do we, how do we suck people in? And that's by hiding all the edges and reveal out of darkness. Yeah, I guess that's also... <laughs> can also be helpful when, uh, I don't know, when the budget is low or when there's a budget cut, just the, the opposite yes. is true or the inverse yes. is true. 
you know, if it, if it ain't lit, it ain't there. But if you'd like it not to be there, just don't light it. Yeah. And, you know, voila, you don't have to spend money on painting that or finishing that or trimming the back of that or whatever it might be. And my, my, second, my second question for you before we jump into your list, which I'm very curious about, is uh, when I, I also have a, a newsletter under the same name, Making the Museum, and, and one of my articles referred to a comment I heard professionally. Someone said, if uh, the exhibition design is done really well, no one will ever ask who the exhibition designer was. And I had a violent reaction to that. I said, <laughs> I, I, I made it sort of a mantra. No, <clears throat> you know, especially cultural institutions, you need every advantage you can get. And an exhibition design that's so good that someone would say, who, hopefully it's good, someone that someone would say, wow, this is terrific. Who designed that? That would actually be an advantage. And I, I, there was a footnote to that article where I said, by the way, I hear it said about lighting designers that if the lighting design is really good, nobody notices it. And I said, I bet lighting designers react just as violently to that as I did to what I heard about my profession. Am I right? Did I, am I guessing right? Or is it, or is it part of the flow of lighting design that, you know, you know, if it ain't lit, it ain't there, but the lighting designer is never there. Well, often the court, it's, it's, if the lighting design is really good and nobody notices, you won't win an award and you won't get hired again. So <laughs> <laughs> there's just a little bit of effort to, you know, you do, uh, professionally, we do like the lighting to get noticed <laughs> because it results in uh, awards and people going like, oh, who lit that show? If, if, it's bl if it's so bland that nobody notices, you will not, the phone will not ring. I'm just imagining like a, so, a jury getting photos of your work and, and looking at it and be like, where's the lighting design? I think that there's a, I think the truth in that statement, Jonathan, is, is a bit of the inverse, meaning that if the lighting is really bad, and typically when you think of bad lighting, you think of two things. Either you walk into a space and all the lights are pointed in your eyes and you have glare, or you have not lit the space in such a way that people can see the lips to find the to find the leader, as Ted said earlier. It, it's if you have neglected your duty and you've done a bad job, people will likely notice that. Uh, they may not know why they don't. They're not happy with their experience, but they will definitely have a substandard experience. Right, which is which is yeah. It's kind of like what you're kind of saying the. Something that's, that both of you are saying something that relates to the other. Uh, one is like if if you don't do an interesting enough job, people are not going to notice you won't get hired again. But on the other hand, uh, if you do a bad job, you also will not get hired again. I think part of the intent of that statement is the lighting should not get in the way of your emotional experience. You know, if you do a good job, you're creating a, a, a performance and experience that that really brings the viewer in. And if you do a bad job, then somebody is distracted because of the lighting. It takes them out mm -hmm. of the emotional experience. And that's that's the bad lighting part. When it's good, it all just feels very natural. Uh, you know, whether it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone kind of musical experience or or a play, um, you're trying to have a, a, a whole experience that you don't pop out of uh, for, the, for the audience. The, the audience doesn't... Um... They, they they stay with their disbelief suspended and they continue to just carry on with the show and they never sort of leave that envelope. Right. That's if right. It's the lighting, lighting right. If right. He, the lighting follows the exhibit, follows the media, and it's a, just a, it's an obvious strip, right? All those things want to feel like they are of one mind. Right, right. And okay. So, okay, good. Well, this is all an excellent segue to jump into your list, revealing the story with light. And as usual, I know your list, but I... I know hardly anything more than that, and I am just as curious as I'm sure our listeners will be. So revealing the story with like, uh, we have five items on the list, and number one is what shadows reveal. This is all very theatrical. What shadows reveal? Which one of you is going to explain what that's all about? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, you know, when you light something, there are many, many options about how you're going to illuminate that object or that graphic or those people or or whatever it is your task with lighting. And if you if you think back to when you're a kid and it's Halloween and you've got your flashlights out to light the sidewalk so you can get from one house to the next, inevitably you all start pointing the shadow, you pointing the flashlight up your nose because it's frightening. It's somehow unnatural and you feel like you're in a horror movie. 
And that is very apropos to what we do. It's choosing where the shadows are going to fall to help set the emotional tone and reveal the content in a way that seems appropriate to the subject matter of the content. So if we were lighting a horror museum, for instance, for instance, we might do a lot of low angle uplight. Uh, but if we're lighting an art museum, we want to reveal those paintings uh, and with as little shadow play as possible. A painting tends to be flat, other, you know, other than a, an art, an artwork has a lot of texture to it. But in general, when you light a painting, you want to make sure that the angle of light that you reveal the painting with is done in such a way that you don't see the reflection of the light in the painting, that you that the that the glare or falls to your feet rather than being something that you experience when you're standing in front of that painting. So uh, when we when when any lighting designer begins teaching an intermediate, uh, I mean in the beginning lighting design class, we often start with this na this notion of angle. Angle, lighting can come from behind you and throw you into silhouette. It can come from in front of you at a low, at a relatively uh, flat angle, and it basically washes out shadow. That's what very often you think about glamour movies in the forties. All of those, uh, all of those actors, the light was there was light mounted right on the lens of the camera. So as the light came at you, the camera saw you. It would make you, it would take away all those years, all that age, and wash out all the wrinkles in your face. If you light somebody like in a dance presentation, you want to reveal the form, the three-dimensionality of a human body, you would often do that. You often do that by lighting from the side, either a low angle side light, a side light that's at your head angle, or a high angle side light. But it, all of those lights help tell a story by where the shadows fall. And, and a big part of what we do is where do the shadows fall? Uh, so for instance, you want to make sure that when you're lighting an object, the shadow, the resulting shadow, does not land across a graphic braille. And all of a sudden, you, your audience can't read the graphic braille because of, because it's in darkness. So this notion of what shadows reveal is more about what three-dimensional quality you're trying to create in a three-dimensional world, or what is the best way to reveal a two-dimensional object. Because we deal with a lot, of course, we deal with a lot of that in, in the museum world. Uh, so what is the best light and the best placement or angle of that light? So lighting, I'm trying to boil this down to something because what you, this resonates with me as a couple of different ways. Lighting is about choosing where the shadows are going to fall. So it's this seems like a very Zen-like way to start here. Right? It's a little <laughs> wax on, wax off. And the, the idea is, and in, in architecture, where where I uh, did my initial studying, it's all about you know the uh, the figure in the ground that you know the Roman town is defined by not the buildings but the spaces between the buildings or the idea that architecture is not really about building anything. It's actually about giving sunlight somewhere to fall. That's right. So this this idea that it's not about the thing you think it is, it's about the absence of the thing, and that's the material that you're working with is, is fascinating. You mentioned that angle is something that uh, students who are starting out are taught. That's a kind of way of thinking about light. Are they also taught this thing that you just said, the idea that it's about where the light isn't? Or is that a is that an available light truism trademark TM two hundred two three? Well, going to be back to your original your, your, the original uh, uh, theory that you posited, which is you know what you don't light you don't see. Yes, that's a that's a very big part of the conversation. And so choosing your light carefully. There's a very famous architectural lighting design book by uh, uh, a very famous lighting designer called Bill Lamb, uh, and it's called. Um, light as form giver uh, and the idea being what you just said until light strikes something reflects off that something and then floats into your eyes you you don't really have any sense of what you're looking at and so when you change the angle of that light it changes your uh, it changes your perspective and it changes your reaction to that and unlike one of the, the thing that I think that sets what we do apart from the theater in the biggest way is and something we have to think about very deeply and carefully is the fact that when you go to the theater and you buy a ticket, you put your butt down in the seat and it stays in that seat at least till intermission and maybe through the whole show. And you are in a fixed place. So the designers have a much easier time with it. They have con 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 those people can completely control what you're going to see for the next two hours. In our world, the audience is moving constantly, and very often they are looking across a room and they'll see the other audience on the other side. 
and they're moving too. So we have to be very careful about how we light an object so it's A, interesting, but B, doesn't light too much of the audience, and C, doesn't light people, put light in people's eyes. So it becomes a much bigger challenge. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we say, sometimes I've, I've been known to say that uh, another metaphor, not about the theater, but about cinema, that a uh, you know documentary film, let's say, is a moving medium that you sit still in front of. And a reality-based exhibition is a medium that's sitting still and you move in front of it. So a lot of the same rules apply. Um, and yeah, that thing about you know, you've got a captive audience and we don't. It's like everything has to, uh, you know, fight for its dinner uh, every every uh, sort of square foot. Um, do y'all still do theater lighting on the side? Ted, you came from theater and that was a big thing for you. And I remember there was a time back when that you were you were lighting Broadway and doing this at the same time. Is that still true? You're still doing theatrical work? Uh, still still doing it on a much smaller scale. This uh, I'm fortunate that Availbyte's taking most of my time, but um, uh, when various volunteer organizations find out uh, what I do, there's a, oh, you know, can you light the Nutcracker this, you know, Christmas? And oh, can you do our spring concert dance thing and do that? So yeah, I still keep my hands in it, um, which I love because it's, I mean, it's it's what I grew up doing and loving so that kind of fills my soul to do that work and, and Stephen also mentioned uh teaching do either of you uh still teach sounds like it sounds like both of you got a background in theatrical lighting design um are there programs in I don't even know this I know there are there are programs for example in landscape architecture out there some undergraduate ones not many how many programs are there out there in lighting design specifically uh, like in the United States well, it tends to be the, the lighting, lighting design programs tend to be specific to a topic, typically. So theatrical lighting design or architectural lighting design, things things like that. Where where I have been teaching the last few years uh, is in the, the graduate program of exhibition and experience design at FIT. So I'm, I'm not teaching lighting design, students of lighting design. Uh, I have the the joy of of teaching exhibit designers about light and that business about angle and when you do demonstrations i mean it's incredible it's always an exciting class you know that what people people have been seeing their whole lives right from the moment they were born they were, they had been seeing and and then when you begin to break down well how do you see or why do you see or how do you feel why do you feel a certain about way about things when they're lit differently it's 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 incredibly uplifting to be part of that experience for students who are just beginning to understand and break down why does light make us react certain ways. It's awesome. And Ted, I think you're one of the people actually who trained me up in lighting design early on because I think you came into our we were working on a project together. You came into our office, and um, you know, I was the designer who thought he knew what he was doing, and you just kind of patiently explained. <laughs> you know some of the some of the things that we've been talking about you know you you have to you have to light it or people won't see it i was like whoa amazing yeah I, I had a lot to learn at that time but one of the one of the other things that uh that i learned from you at that time was you need a lot more lights to have light than you would think and i think it goes to what stephen was saying about angle in other words I don't remember what it was, but we were working on something and I said, hey, we'll have a light over there. And you said, you you have to have the light at the right angle. You can't just put it right over the thing. Uh, <laughs> it has to be well back at a certain angle and you're going to need more than one. I think for the reason that Stephen was was just saying, is there, do you remember those conversations where you, you probably yeah, don't remember them? You're like, I this have guy. them on almost every project when it comes to VE because they say like, this is a dark exhibit. You don't need that many lights. And there's a there's a common you know belief that uh, uh, quantity of lights equals brightness that you uh, more lights equals a bright environment but in fact for a more dramatic environment you're trying it's all about control and control usually means like a, more smaller brushes that you can control exactly where that shadow falls where the light falls put the light where you want it and keep it off the things you don't want it but but often even those dark surfaces have like a little bit of light so you can control contrast ratios and things like that. So it's not just that you 
turn all those lights off or you don't even have them, you're you're controlling it to a much finer degree. If you've ever seen photos of a film set, it, it's a lot like that. You know, there's like every, you know, 12 square inches has a separate light on it and you never see them because they're off camera. Right. Uh, but those, everything you see through a, a camera lens on a motion picture is impeccably lit uh, with a, a lot of lights. Okay, that's a quotable quote. More lights aren't about being brighter, it's about more control. Um, you also just used an interesting phrase I want to come back to for a minute. I don't know if you realize you used it. You just said many small brushes. Mm. And that, that's a, I don't know, I'm imagining many small brushes. But what's funny about that is that a light bulb isn't a brush. Can you say more about how you think about design? Are you thinking about, do you think of lighting as painting? Is that is that a lighter lighting design thing to think? Or is that a Ted thing to think? Uh, no, it, it, that is a common, it's a common phrase of, you know, painting with light. It's, um, you know, kind of a simplistic way of phrasing it, but it, it is true. You know, if you, if you look at a painting, a, a Da Vinci or something, you know, there's no way that was painted with a four inch brush. You know, there might've been a four inch brush to start to get that, that undercoat, the base coat, but as it gets finer and finer and more detailed, the things that bring out those incredible details of, of an eye or, or the curl of a lip, those are very small brushes done very meticulously. And, and we work kind of the same way. It's, uh, it's almost a little bit more like sculpture, you know, uh, sculpture where you're starting with a big block and you could do kind of big chunky hits to get the shape. And, and then sometimes you leave the bottom part a little chunkier, but as you get up to an arm, that's where you start to, tick, 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 tick. you know, you're using a little smaller, smaller chisels, you know, it is kind of the way, the more I think of it when I work is more, that way than painting see so, somehow when you talk that way i get all excited <laughs> i don't know everyone has to work with these guys okay so number two on your list is the abcs of lighting and uh i want to alert the audience there are sub items on this particular item so abcs of lighting is number two <laughs> but but sub item number one is ambient luminescence and number two is focal glow and the number three is play of brilliance. What, what what are these? What are the ABCs of lighting? What what is? I feel like this is something we all have. We all have to write down. Can you explain this? So yes, everything that uh, people experience if they've never experienced it before, they you find intimidating. And so a teacher's job is to help the student not be intimidated. You can't master your craft until until you no longer are afraid of the of the way that you're going to achieve your goals. So a very wise landing designer named Richard Kelly back in the, who was working in the late 40s to the early 60s, uh, I, I, I don't know whether he was a teacher, a formal teacher, or whether he just came up with this system as a way to communicate with his clients. But if you can basically break down the idea of landing design into three common uh, usages, which is what the ABCs, or we'll keep, we could call them the one, two, threes, if you like, Jonathan. I know ABCs makes you nervous. <laughs> uh, well, I keep one, I'm like an old spelling bee person, so I keep expecting that A is going to be right, A, right. B is going to be B. It's like apple and boy and cartilage. I, I don't know. Anyway. So basically, there there are, let's say that there are, there are, although we're going to talk about three, there are actually, the fourth element will always be darkness, because as we've been talking through this entire conversation, that which comes from darkness is most interesting. So if you think about these three layers or approaches to a lighting design, you basically have it covered in terms of geography and angle. So starting with ambient luminescence, it's really just a very lovely poetic way to say ambient light. First, you have to, you have to give shape to a space or definition to a space or define the scale of the space. And very often that's done just by generally illuminating the entire space. So what Ted was talking about earlier, even something that may be pitch black in its in its form and function, if it doesn't have a little light on it, you may not you may not understand it or perceive that thing for what it is. So a little bit of light reflecting off it helps. So any luminescence is basically let's call the, the the grounding for any lighting design. Next, you have number two or B, uh, would be focal glow. <laughs> uh, and focal glow it is really just a, a poetic way of saying accent lighting. This is a big part of of the available light experience. Once we've once we've sort of brushed in the base with ambient light, we're then now trying to decide 
where we what want our audience to look, what are the important things to make sure that they see. And so when you hear lighting designers often talk about helping create a sense of hierarchy, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary places to look, accent lighting or focal glow helps with that a great deal because it, uh, it focuses your eye to the places that you want them to see. And a good lighting designer will pick a really good angle for that accent to come from. Uh, rarely does it come directly from the front because as we were talking about earlier, light that comes from the front tends to de-emphasize form. And so by, by moving that light to a side or a back or something like that, you begin to reveal three dimensions in a much more interesting way. So that would be the accent lighting. And then the third layer is really that layer of interest at what makes this, this space special. And that this is what Richard Kelly called the play of brilliance. In many cases, if you think about it, if you go into a restaurant, uh, you might see lots of little globes of light glowing in the space, and you, you get immediately kind of emotionally sucked into that. And most people believe that when they walk into a restaurant and they see the, those little sparkling globes, that it is the globes that are creating ambient luminescence or ambient light. It is the globes that are creating focal glow or accent light. But typically, if you look more carefully, you will find that there are other lights hidden in the ceiling or hidden in the walls or hidden somewhere, much less visible to your eye, that are doing the workhorse lighting and the focal glow is creating the emotional quality of the scene and making you really happy that you came there. So really, in a nutshell, that, that's what those three, that, that those three techniques are all about. So it's sort of, I'm struggling to find an actual B and an actual C, but in short, although those are all... I'm going to fail. Uh, those are all very poetic ways of saying it's sort of uh, breaking it down in size almost. Ambient is like the whole space. And then the, the spotlights or the focus are individual zones within that. And then this last thing of the play of brilliance is like little twinkles or something yeah. like that that are sort of around. And would you say, because I remember one of you teaching me this once, you know, back in the day, that something like a little bit of glare, a little bit of twinkle, you actually need it. You need to have a little reflection on a surface. You need to come in and see it. It's kind of like a car show or something. There need to be some lights that are going to make that thing twinkle. Is it, uh, how do I phrase it? Do, do you need all three of these for a balanced diet? Like is, is, is the ABCs, these three elements, is, is the rule that you need to do all three or that they all three are each all the time? Yeah, that's my question. Like Ted was saying, it's like, you know, uh, brushes uh, in your in your painter's kit. You have the wide brush, you have the medium brush, you have the narrow brush. It's, it sort of relates to that a little bit. Do, uh, do you know that you've done a good job if you've used all your brushes? Or are these just three tools you can wield? Is this a checklist or is it a set of tools? It's a set of tools. Uh, it's, it's much, I mean, one of the most profound things I remember ever hearing was, you know, we have eight notes in, our, in the music scale. And from those eight notes, you, the world of music has exploded in, in Western civilization. I think the same would be true for lighting design. These, I mean, we also have color. We have some other tools as well. But the big three for lighting designer are these three notes. Does every composition have all three notes? Absolutely not. Uh, Ted lit uh, uh, an exhibit uh, for the Academy Awards Museum that was an exploration of sound. It was all about scoring a film. And the, it, it was the exhibit by a, a composer for movies whose name I don't what, what was her name, Ted? Hilda. Kitty, uh, and then her last name, uh, I can't, can't pronounce, but she right. got the Academy Award for Batman or the Joker. Oh, right, right. And for so the, the, the composer wanted uh, an experience that would focus your ears completely on listening to music. So you might think, well, the best way to do that is to put people in a black room and it forces them to listen. But in fact, if you're in a public space and you're in a completely blackened place, you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to be focused on how beautiful the music is. You're going to be focused on who's going to grope me or steal my wallet. And so there had to be some solution, some note of light that would allow the music to unfold in ways that people could hyper-focus on it. And what Ted came up with was a glowing red ball of light uh, about the size of a bocce ball. And uh, it very slowly changed intensity 
Uh, but it was virtually the only light in the room. There was a little bit of ambient luminescence. There was a little bit of ambient light around a, a hassock that allowed you to see the floor, but barely. And by by releasing the audience from any fear they might have, but not allowing them to focus on anything other than a glowing orb, this experience of listening to the music became absolutely fantastic. It was just a perfect solution. Wow, I'd like to to investigate that a little bit more. I'm flashing back to something, Ted, you said earlier uh, in this session, which is if the lips ain't lit, nobody hears them. And it sounds like there's a kind of a, a caveat to that or a, or a codicil or a, an, an add-on that Stephen has just revealed, which is you have to have, even if you don't have any lips there, you need a little bit of light or no one will hear it. That was a sound exhibition. And it sounds like your glowing bocce ball was sort of the minimum distillation of light, because to your point, if you don't have some light, no one can hear, which I think is profoundly synesthetic or something like that. But right. is, that a, is that a good add-on to your previous rule, if the lips ain't lit, nobody hears them? Uh, I, think, I think so. You know, I think in that particular exhibit, you know, audio is such uh, a powerful medium, but your eyes, we depend on our eyes most of the time for uh, most of our information that we get throughout the day. So when you go into an environment where the focus is suddenly supposed to be your hearing, it's hard to turn your visual sense off. And so what this did was it calmed you down and it gave your visual sense something to lock on. It was just enough visual to occupy your visual sense, but it, there's where it stopped. Then your eyes and your your optical system could kind of slow down and shut down. And then your ears became your primary sensibility. And then those 32 channels of audio became your primary sense. And so it, it just helped put you in a place to allow you to hear better. That's terrific. Wow. I'm just like, uh, I'm taking notes left and right. I'm sure our audience is too. This is terrific. Okay. Uh, let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. Today, I am talking with Stephen Rosen and Ted Mather from Available Light. So I think our next point is going to be number three, which I will attempt to read without laughing. I've already failed. Okay. Uh, point number three, help. I'm a curator tasked with lighting design. Where do I start? I'm uh, I'm feeling this. Who's gonna Who's gonna tell this curator where to start? I'll I'll help out. I'll step in. I'll All right, be... lifeguard. Um, I think a, a lot of people assume that the lights are already there and that our job is like screwing in the light bulbs, but there's an infrastructure that's already there uh, that you're not starting from a blank slate. So on, on one hand, you know we kind of bring in the idea of if it's a new building or a new exhibit that you know the world is our oyster that we can start from a clean sheet of paper and design what we want uh, in, a, in an ideal situation. Um, so there has to be just kind of a reality check of what of what we do. But I think the biggest uh, thing that we bring to a curator is the idea that this, that there's a different style, there's a range of styles of presenting information, of presenting an exhibit. And many curators are only exposed uh, when they're growing up or in school to one style of presentation, which can be very didactic, a little boring, a little, you know, just graphics on the wall kind of thing. And so they don't realize what they haven't been exposed to a different range of, of presentation. So what I like to do is is kind of explain to them, you know, these are options that we can do. So to give an example, um, you know, if, if they're tasked with lighting a plow, like that's pulled by an ox or a mm -hmm. mule or something. Okay. The traditional way might be just very ambient light, very general, soft. You're not commenting on the artifact at all. Uh, scholars can see all the nicks and scratches, maybe an inscription of who built it or something. Um, and it's very, you know, it's just kind of there without comment. Uh, but for the average person walking by, you're in a school group, you have a limited amount of time, it, it could be kind of boring seeing that in the corner. So if we start to light that dimensionally and give it a little bit, you know, a little bit brighter on one side than the other, and we let some shadows fall on one side that maybe is not very interesting, then it becomes an interesting object to look at. So that might 
draw someone in to say like, oh, that's, let me take a, a look at that and see what that is. If we then go another step further and make some of that light tinted a little yellower on one side, a little bluer on another side, or a warm white and a cool white, kind of evoking it being outside, it starts to evoke how that was used, the location that it was used in, that it was an outside object. Uh, so it gets a little bit of context. And then if you as the exhibit designer set that plow on, on a, some fake dirt and some tufts of grass and so forth, then I might be inclined to put a little dappled light on it. So it looks like there's some light coming through a tree, through trees. And now we're starting to create an immersive environment. You know, it's a little bit theatrical. Then that's something that they would not have seen in another museum somewhere. It's, it's a little bit more interesting. And if, if you then play a little bit of music from say a slave singing an African-American spiritual, because that's what they use. Now you've got an emotional experience around that plow that like, ah, this was, you know, this is gripping, so to speak. And, and then if you want to make an interactive out of that, maybe you grip that plow and, and you have to press on it or something the way they would have had to, to reach a point on a meter or something to experience how difficult it was to operate that thing to, you know, day by day. So, so now you're getting a visceral experience of what that slave was going through day after day. And now that's a memorable experience, um, you know, that they're going to take with them like the rest of their lives. Every time they either hear that song or they see someone out in the fields or a, even a modern tractor pulling a plow, they think, oh my God, you know what they used to have to do? So that's like, a, a long continuum of how to light one object and different styles of how that object can be lit. So, so each time you're, and you would, have you ever used this? Is this the first time you're using this, the the Ted Mather light the plow example, it, or is this something is. you've used with, it is, this is okay, this is great. Let's, let's get this written down because I think you're just kind of exposing these, um, I don't know, you're taking it up a notch each time. You right, could do this. Yeah, additional layers, yeah. And I guess each time it's not that one uh, approach is right or wrong, because it could be that the That's scholarly right. approach, uh, which just simply exposes the nicks and the parts and lights it well for um, scholarly examination, could in some cases be exactly what's correct, because that's the brief, that's the whole point of the show. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, it could be something where it has to draw people in. They, they may not be an audience that cares already, and they, they need to be drawn in and made to be interested and, and made to take away something that's memorable, where at the beginning of the day, they had no intention of gripping a plow, but these various steps enable that. And, and many of them, as you've described, do actually have to do with lighting. Do I have that kind of right? Yeah, yes. We're printing up t-shirts, you know, later on today. <laughs> the, and, uh, and absolutely, sometimes, you know, they might say, no, we don't want to comment. We just want it, you know, very kind of academically, scholarly. We don't want to comment on it. We want it to exist as a work of art or as a piece of art or artifact on its own. So there often can be very strong directives from the curator, but sometimes they don't even know what options there might might even be. So I, I have something else you said I want to go back to for just a minute. There's a thing in my head that I'm not sure. No, I think I have said it to other humans in the past, which is the question of tinted light. I have, because you know I've been doing this for a while, you guys have been doing this for a while, I've seen in exhibition design, there's sort of like the, the East Coast exhibition design, which is, you know, the scholarly white light, don't comment, don't add light that wouldn't have been there. We don't know what color of light would have been on that plow. Let's just keep it sunlight, et cetera. And then there's more like, I've always kind of imagined the West Coast way coming from the theme park, coming from, you know, Anaheim, coming from uh, you know, Orlando or whatever, you know, Chicago, Second City come in this way that's more like, let's light it for theatrical effect. Let's cue the emotion. Let's let people, let's tell people this is how you should feel. And people do want to feel a certain way and they don't necessarily want to work that hard at it to your, to your good point before. But I've often thought of this as sort of like a East Coast, West Coast hip hop feud kind of a thing that there's like, there's like the white light people uh, just light it straight up. And then there's the the gel light, the theatrical light people. What's your comment on that? <laughs> wow. I know it's completely made up in my head, isn't it? It's totally made up. But I, I do remember there was a time because uh, I was on a panel and we were presenting uh, this sort of work. 
And it was like, uh, you know, the work that I was showing was kind of color temperature, but it wasn't about changing to other hues or, or other tones. And somebody else was presenting something and they had come from uh, LA. And there, someone commented that it's, you know, East Coast, West Coast or something like that. And it must have stuck with me. Is this, is this a phenomenon that's real or should I just simply stop here? Uh, I don't know if it's geographic, but I, I like it. There's definitely the two approaches. Absolutely. Uh, but I like the geography that that uh, that makes more sense. It's a better this story. Makes, makes yeah, me this think sounds of like a joke a that, 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 I, that I have not yet penned, but it, it would be a curator and a museum director walk into a bar. Uh, and in fact, rather than it being West Coast or East Coast, it's really about attitude of the person who is leading the charge. Um, directors tend to uh, directors tend to think about getting people to come to their museum. Right, that butts, butts in, in the ways, seats. Yeah, that that is what's in their that is their brief. Right, and so they are going to be probably more West Coast than the curator, who's who's focused hyper focused on the object, the painting, the, the plow, whatever it is, and that specialty lighting may for that particular person cloud the issue or make commentary that they don't want to make they want the audience to come up with their own right or they or they or don't want to be inaccurate right that's they right don't want to say like okay we're projecting these uh, dappled leaf pattern we can't guarantee that that plow would have been under that species of leaf exactly at any given time and therefore we're promulgating uh, some sort of made-up idea about history that's not true and that's right. that's uh, anathema to our profession all right so if you know so if you're dealing with uh, adults who uh, on on the whole team, right? Because lighting design is the team sport. I mean, there are a lot of people involved with the decisions about how something is going to be illuminated. When you can have these meaningful conversations where different people have different points of view about this object, about this thing, or about the, the, what they, they want to evoke from this thing, then you can come up with a very meaningful solution that addresses each of the, each concern of each party. You know, someone not everyone's going to get what they want, but ultimately you may end up getting a better uh, a better experience for the audience. Because I think it's fair to say when a lighting designer looks at something, what we think about is how to make that thing sing, right? How to make it beautiful. And a curator might say, wait a minute, you know, that's great that it's beautiful, and it, but you're, I can't see inside the cart, right? Because you've created such a dramatic thing, I can't see inside. So right. it, it's a collaborative, it is very much a collaborative work that we do. Exactly. Exactly. By the way, design is a team sport. That's the next t-shirt we'll be printing tomorrow. <laughs> um, uh, number four, is lighting art or science? Is lighting art or science? Well, I, I would actually, what I would say about that is that when you, when you ask a lighting designer uh, why they enjoy what they do, most of them will tell you that the appeal to the occupation is that it is half art and half science. That there is, you have to understand a bit about physics and optics and reflectors. You have to understand about electricity. You have to understand about uh, finishes and, uh, and uh, structure and how things are held up in the air. There's a lot of science in what we do. And then what we've really been more focused on today is really more the art of lighting design. It's more fun to talk about. Uh, it is the art of lighting design, but in fact, the two of them coexist. That you know, you can you can have a great idea about how something should look or feel, but if you don't have all the technical skills to actually go from a napkin sketch to something that's built into a gallery, then you're not gonna you you will not succeed. Um, and 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 from a museum and 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 that comment about art and science would be true of all lighting design. However, there's another part of science that's critical to, uh, especially the museum going experience where you have delicate objects and you have conservation issues. And we very often, going back to the same kind of thing we were talking about earlier, very often in museums where the collection has a lot of priceless objects, you often find the most boring lighting. And the reason for that is that people are so scared of putting too much light on an object because of conservation criteria, they just kind of, they, they punt and just kind of light everything to a very low level. That is exactly the opposite experience that we want people that come 
and see the work we're doing. That's not the experience we want them to have. There are rules about conservation, uh, amount of light, time of exposure. So you you not only measure you're not only measuring how much light is falling on an object, and you do that either in foot candles or locks, uh, but you're also measuring how many hours an object is exposed to that amount of light. And if you if you have a metric that talks about exposure over time, that gives the design team the freedom to use that light any way they want. So if they want a hugely bright light on a priceless Bible, you can do that. Maybe five seconds a year, but you could do it. Or you could keep paring back how much light you're using back and back and back and back, which increases the amount of exposure that you can give to that object. And so we play with those. That Those are tools that we play with all the time about how to make something interest, how to have contrast and highlight and revealing objects in interesting three-dimensional ways, but still adhere to the rules of conservation science. So it sounds like uh, my first impression is the number three here, sorry, number four, is uh, lighting, art, or science. Trick question. Uh, <laughs> it's both. But the way you just described it, it sounds like uh, lighting is, how shall I say it? Like, uh, the science isn't optional. Like Correct. some Correct. of these things about like the, the the foot candles or the lux on something, that must be taken care of, whether it's five seconds a year or it's more or whatever on the Priceless Bible. Your duty as a lighting designer is to make sure that that thing is taken care of. It sounds like the, you know, your Hippocratic Oath is the science kind of comes a little first and then you you do art with her. You try to do it both at the same time, but it sounds to me like one of them is kind of nosing a little bit ahead. Ted, Ted, what's your take? Do you agree or are you going to be good to me and disagree? <laughs> I, I honestly, I think we're very good craftsmen. Um, I, I like to think of artists as people who really bring a point of view to the world, you know, whether it's a painting or a dance or song, that there's some very unique point of view. And I, I view myself as a, as a expert craftsman who has all those technical skills that can help elevate that art to be its best thing, whatever that is that it's trying to achieve. So in the same way that like someone makes a belt, you know, and there's, there's plain belts, but there's like exquisite belts, a Gucci belt or something that, you know, people hold it up and they say, you've elevated this to an art. And that's kind of think the strata that we operate in that it's still, I think, craft, you know, we have artistic art training and background, a lot of it is technical, but we elevate it to such a point that the technical side is invisible and the uh, the visual compositional art side is kind of what what it appears to be out front. But I think also you're leading in this program right now, this list is leading with the art, talking about the shadows using theatrical metaphors. Yeah. We just had a Gucci belt before we had a plow. I don't know where you're going, but um, <laughs> it seems like the uh, that art piece thinking about it that way is going to communicate it communicates to me better because i don't know all of the details of the electricity and the optics that you would be talking about i'll leave that to you but i think also for our audience and our listeners and for the point you had earlier like help i'm a curator who has to do lighting design for anyone who's in that kind of a boat thinking about the art is a lot more you'll get further than mm -hmm. if you attempt to think about the, the engineering for engineering and for science uh call call y'all up i suppose so uh, number five, the last one, <laughs> is just says photon or wave. And I, I have to think that I'm, this is some kind of NYU theater school, <laughs> I'm being hazed situation here. What, 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 what are you up to with photon or wave? I, I think it's a playful way of saying lighting is hard to understand, you know, because it, it, technically, light can behave as a photon, uh, which are like particles that zip out, like like bolts out of a gun, or it can behave as a wave, like like ripples of water. It's it, depending on how you look at it, but like nobody seems to understand it, and that's that's the world that we work in. As people, it's not touchable, so people don't understand light in the same way that they can understand flooring or you know a, a paint or something that is tangible. You can put it in front of them. People can approve it. Uh, the, there's a dollar number assigned to it that all makes sense. Lighting is like nobody gets it until you're done. And then they go, ah, 
Now I get it. But, you know, we have to protect the design and protect the process all the way through up until that very last point, because it doesn't really gel until very, very late in a multi-year process. Uh, and then people kind of get it, but but you've got to usher it in through through that whole process in the meantime. So I get you're kind of saying a photon or wave is kind of a metaphorical way of saying lighting is hard to understand. But I think the underlying message you're saying is kind of don't lose faith. Maybe we're saying, you know, don't value engineering right. the lighting out. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, be lighting. <laughs> but, but really you're saying it, it takes a while for it to be realized. It's not like the paint. I can mail a client a piece of a sample of paint or a piece of flooring, like you said, and they can look at it and be like, yeah, I like this one. It's good. I like the Paisley or whatever. Right. Uh, let's go with the Paisley. But you can't, you know, ship them a mysteriously lit shadowy zone. You can't get that in the mail. So it's kind of like this is kind of a pep talk to say, everybody, uh, keep the faith. Uh, lighting is important. And you're going to have to wait until the end to see what is what it what is really going to look like. But don't don't undervalue it. And you're going to be very happy in the end. Most of our clients, um, like like most of our clients are repeat business. We work for, we have clients that we've had for decades. Uh, and each of them at some point in working with us has had that aha moment where we've been talking about this thing and we've been asking for a little, a few more inches in the ceiling here. We've been pushing the envelope in, in ways that are not comfortable to the exhibit designer because they have other priorities. But when they keep, when we have that give and take, there is some moment in time when they have walked into a completed exhibit and they just say, now I understand. And our, our best advocates are our clients because they have to sit in the room with a client and say, no, you've got to trust me on this. You, it, it may not make sense, but when you walk in, you will have that moment of understanding. It'll become crystal clear why these small steps are so important. Yeah, and I think uh, I, I guess I'm I'm one of the people you're talking about. I've yes. been, uh, you know, you you uh, both of you have been and and your other colleagues have been helping us on our projects, and so we are uh, now that I think about it, doing exactly what you just said. We're actually in meetings with our clients and trying to hold the flag of lighting design high in the air and say we need more ceiling height. We're not going to get we're starting to sound like you. It's like we we can't get an yeah, angle yeah. on this. We need you know we need we need more more cans that are smaller. You know this has to be all LED. Where's the Unistrut? Where's the bus bar? Uh, we need uh, we need show control in here. You know call up the DMX people, Media Line everywhere. Um, Ted, Ted, so, our work is done here. <laughs> I I uh, I do not think so because all that other science stuff is somewhat over the head of me, and over the head of a lot of other people that are that are like me, but. I'm just I'm realizing in this conversation how much uh, y'all have actually taught me. I hope that this conversation has also taught our listeners a bunch. I've been sort of frenetically taking notes as I often do, and usually that's a sign that I bet we're going to have some of our listeners uh, taking notes uh, as well. This is super informative. You guys really have a, a nice knack with metaphor and obviously a passion for uh, communicating something that I can tell sometimes you you might get a little tired of having to recommunicate it again and again. All right. So anyway, we've been uh, let's do a quick recap for the note takers out there. Revealing the story with light is what we've been talking about. And uh, our points were number one, what shadows reveal. Number two, the ABCs of lighting, ambient luminescence, focal glow and play of brilliance. Number three, help. I'm a curator tasked with lighting design. Where do I start? Number four, is lighting art or science? And number five, our philosophical end point, photon or wave. How did I do? Outstanding. All you need to know right there. Okay. Well, it seems like because we, we've been covering the art, we're probably going to have another episode on, on science at some point. But if we've covered it, Stephen Rosen and Ted Mather, it has been terrific to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. And, and thank you also for focusing the, the first part of all of this on our our, our Praxis Exhibitions group. It's a, an amazing group of people who truly be embrace the collaboration of, of bringing together exhibitions. So it's been really nice to have you as part of this. Thank you. It has been nice to kind of go through the ranks of Praxis. Uh, it's a network group that uh, has sort of one of each kind of professional uh, in a typical exhibition team uh, and all very veteran. And so it's been a great way to 
uh, give our audience uh, just really that kind of cross-training, that kind of, uh, I don't know, multi multidisciplinary mini master's degree in a series of podcast yeah. episodes, which I think is great, Praxis Group. Uh, by the way, that uh, uh, link to that group will certainly find its way to the show notes. But before we get to that, if folks would like to get in touch with each of you, what is the best way for them to do that? Stephen, what's the what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, probably email uh, Stephen with a V at AvailableLight.com. At Stephen with a V at AvailableLight.com. And Ted, how about you? What's your best contact method? Uh, very similar, but Ted, T-E-D, at AvailableLight.com. Got it. Okay, terrific. So we'll put some more stuff in the show notes for people, some of the things that were mentioned and more ways to get in touch with you. Great. All right. That's it for this episode. By the way, did you know that this podcast has a sister? It's a short daily newsletter every weekday under the same name, all about strategy and planning for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals. Learn more and subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.